Welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today we feature John Stott. Born in 1921, he was well known throughout the world for his writings and godly influence in the global church. In 2011, the evangelical world lost one of its greatest spokesmen, and I have lost one of my closest friends and advisors, said Billy Graham. Today, John Stott presents a study on man and God from the series, No Man is an Island. It was recorded on January 1st, 1975. I'd like just to say before uh, we begin, we're sorry about the heat in St. Peter's. Uh, although the fan, I think, is on, uh, it, it's, we have this difficulty with ventilation, and we're sorry for visitors. We also have the problem of this burglar alarm that you can probably still hear outside. John Aldis has uh, telephoned the police and uh, tried to persuade them to do something about it, and apparently they've telephoned the bloke what is responsible, <laughs> and uh, he says he can't be bothered to come up and stop it. So uh, that's why it's still ringing, and... Uh, at least I think it is, is it? Yeah. One gets so used to it uh, after a while. So we're sorry about these distractions. There will be, incidentally, I forgot to say, coffee uh, after the service this morning, if you can stay. You'll be hot enough then to need, I think, to refresh yourselves, and it'll give us a chance to meet one another more informally then. Well, we begin this morning a series of four sermons under the title, No Man is an Island. And many of you will readily recognize these words as a quotation from John Donne, who for ten years at the beginning of the 17th century was dean of St. Paul's Cathedral here in London. And the words come from a book of his called Devotions, which were published in 1624, the year after he had a very serious illness in which he found himself meditating on the issues of life and death. And he alludes in devotions to the solidarity of mankind, the fact that we belong to one another in human society. And no man is an isolated island cut off from everybody else. And if we do isolate ourselves, or if we are cut off from other people even by bereavement, we diminish ourselves and are impoverished. I'll give you a little bit more of the quotation. No man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. And he goes on, if a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less, as well as if a promontory were, and so on. So no man is an island, can exist in and of himself, by himself, in total isolation and independence of others. Now, to say no man is an island is a negative statement, and the importance for our purposes on these Sunday mornings is the positive counterpart. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. And my concern is that we investigate together what this continent is, of which man is a piece or a part. Where does man belong? What is the context within which a man or woman discovers himself, realizes himself, 
fulfills himself? And it's a very important question because it raises the whole matter of the nature of man. Now the Christian answer to the question is not just that man belongs to mankind as a whole. His context includes society, the whole of mankind, but it is a wider context than that. Our human life, as we know very well when we stop to think about it, consists of a whole complex of relationships. There is man and God, which is our subject today. There is man and nature, which is our subject next Sunday. There is man and society, our subject in two weeks. And then there is man and himself. And we cannot find ourselves and discover and fulfill ourselves unless we are in a true and a proper relationship to these people or things, God, nature, society, and ourselves. So we begin today with this fundamental question, man and God. God is the supreme context to which man belongs and in which man discovers himself. So Berdaev was surely right to say that man without God is no longer man. He ceases to be himself. He's lost his nature, his destiny as a human being. Well, there was a Puritan in the 17th century, Thomas Manton by name, who at one time is one of Oliver Cromwell's chaplains, who in his, one of his commentaries wrote, when you go about to un-God God, you un-man yourself. If you un-God God, you un-man man. You dethrone God, you dehumanize man. You're bound to, because man's essential context in which he finds his humanity is in relation to God. Uh, if we were to summarize in one word the proper relation of man to God, we would have, I think, to resort to the word worship. Man is a worshiper of God, and he only finds himself when he has a worshipful relationship to God. The English word worship indicates that worship is a recognition of the worth of God, that God has infinite worth, and it's when we recognize his worth as God that we worship him. So the worship of God is the homage that is paid to him because he is worthy. It is the honor that is due to him because of who he is. It follows, therefore, that we have to know who he is, and we have to know how this God has related himself to us if we are to give him homage that is worthy of him. Now that's why I ask that the second Bible reading in our service today would be taken from John 4. And I'd like to ask you to turn to that passage. It comes in the New Testament section on page 90. The Samaritan woman, you remember, was embarrassed because Jesus asked her to fetch her husband. And she was even more embarrassed when he told her what, of course, she knew already, that she'd had five husbands and the sixth man with whom she was living was not her husband. So she tried to change the conversation that had become so embarrassing to a religious topic. And she introduced the debate that was going on between Samaritans and Jews at that time as to what was the proper place of worship, whether Mount Gerizim 
where the Samaritans worshipped, or Mount Zion, Jerusalem, where the Jews worshipped. The remarkable thing, how religion can be a refuge for the immoral, as it was for her. And Jesus said to her in verse 22, You worship, you Samaritans worship what you don't know. You worship, but you don't know the object of your worship. Your knowledge is at least partial and defective. But we, that is we Jews, know what we worship. The object of our worship is known to us. The salvation is from the Jews, and God's plan of salvation is unfolding within his chosen nation. Jesus is referring to the fact that although the Samaritans accepted the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, they rejected the Psalms, they rejected the prophets, they rejected the historical books, and therefore their knowledge of God was defective. They only accepted a partial revelation of God. So this indicates, you see, that the knowledge of God is indispensable to the worship of God. And if our knowledge of God is limited, our worship of God will be limited. As Calvin put it, unless there is knowledge present. It is not God that we worship, but a specter or a ghost. When we do not know God, when our knowledge of God is defective, then we descend to the level of the Athenians who inscribed their altar to an unknown God. We have to ask, who is God? How has he related himself to us? Because it's only by answering these questions that we can offer acceptable worship to God. So how shall we answer the question? First, God is our creator, and Christian worship is the creature's worship of the creator. That is where worship begins. That is where our relation to God begins. The first element in God's relation to us and of us to God is that he created us and we are the creatures of God. Now all God's creatures praise him. Whether animate or inanimate, they praise him. They are summoned to do so in the Psalms. The beasts of the earth, the monsters of the sea, creeping things and flying birds, fire, hail, snow, frost, wind, mountains, trees, Let them praise the name of the Lord. But, of course, there is a difference between their worship and our worship. Inanimate nature worships God compulsorily. It submits to the will of the Creator. It can do no other. Animate nature, subhuman animate nature, worships God instinctively. But human beings are called to worship God not compulsorily, but freely not instinctively, but rationally. We are called to give to God the free and the rational worship of our whole being. But God didn't create man to be independent of himself. He didn't just create man and then said, well, there you are, get on with it. As in, for example, science fiction, a man creates a robot And the robot then rises up in wrath against its creator and destroys him. No, no, God created man to enjoy a continuing relationship to his creator, a relation of acknowledged dependence upon his creator, freely and rationally acknowledged. So the whole Psalter ends, let everything that breathes 
praise the Lord. You see, our very breath is in his hand. We live and move and have our being in God. If he took away our breath, we would die, turn again to the dust. Do you not sometimes walk down the street as I do, holding your pulse, feeling the heart beat, saying to yourself, my very breath is in God's hand? This is where worship begins. It's a creaturely dependence upon our Creator. Gladly and freely recognized. Two, God is not only our creator, God is our saviour. And Christian worship is the sinner's worship of his saviour. We move, you see, from creation to salvation because instead of remaining in an attitude of dependence upon the creator, man made a bid for independence and rebelled against his creator. He questioned God's goodness, doubted his honor, rejected his authority, and so received the judgment of God, the penalty for disobedience. Man was deprived of that natural fellowship with his creator for which he had been created, and he became alienated, disorientated, and lost. And yet God's judgment upon man did not mean a total rejection. God promised to rescue man from the consequences of his own disobedience. So God chose Israel to be his own special people and began to unfold his eternal purpose of salvation both by word and by symbolism. In the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, until in the fullness of time God sent his Son to be born as a man, to live upon earth, to die for our sins, to bear our judgment, to rise again in triumph, to return in glory to heaven, to send the Holy Spirit to work out within his redeemed people the redemption that he had achieved. And the Christian worshiper never strays far from the cross. He adds to the creature's worship of the Creator this new dimension of the sinner's worship of the Savior. He's filled, you see, with gratitude that God should have acted in such sheer and utter grace towards him as to give his only Son to die for our salvation. The Christian worshiper never forgets his debt to Christ. He looks forward to eternity when he will join the whole redeemed company in heaven in ascribing salvation to God who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb whose blood was shed for our redemption. And meanwhile, until he joins the eternal chorus in heaven, his hymns on earth are full of the same thing. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my dear Redeemer's name, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of his grace. And again he breaks the power of cancelled sin, he sets the prisoner free, his blood can make the vilest clean, his blood availed for me. Worship, you see, is the sinner's worship of his Saviour. Thirdly, God is our master, and Christian worship is the servant's worship of his Lord. 
It's interesting that the common words for worship, both in the Hebrew of the Old Testament and the Greek of the New Testament, mean literally service. Worship is service and indicates the slave's devotion to his master. And this, you see, the devotion of the servant to his Lord, this is our covenant obligation. I think we need to remember this truth of the covenant. I doubt if we can understand biblical religion at all if we don't understand about the covenant. The theme of God entering into a covenant with man runs right through Scripture from beginning to end, and it is one of the major clues to the understanding of God's dealings with man. We need to remember that way back thousands of years before Christ, or to be more accurate, about a thousand and a half years before Christ, God entered into a covenant with his people at Mount Sinai, confirming the covenant he had made with Abraham before. He didn't just redeem them from Egypt, rescuing them from slavery. He did a positive thing. He became their God. He related himself to them as their covenant God by solemn obligation. He said, you will be my people. I will be your God. And Israel's covenant obligation was obedience. God said to them, I am the Lord your God. So you shall have no other gods but me. You shall do this. You shall do that. You shall not do the other. You shall obey me because I am your covenant God. All that the Lord has commanded us, Israel replied, we will do. This was their acceptance of covenant obligation in obedience to their Lord and Master. And it's just the same for us. We are the covenant people of God. God has ratified this covenant by the blood of Jesus. Jesus shed his blood for the new covenant, you see, between God and man. We are his covenant people. He has made himself our God. He's made us his people. And it's our obligation to obey him. So Christian worship is not just worship services. That's what we come together for now to sing hymns, to say prayers. But Christian worship isn't worship services. It's obeying God's commands. And the purpose of public worship on Sunday is to bring into a sharp focus for a brief hour or hour and a half what is the devotion of our whole being and of our whole life. And unless what we sing and say in church is an honest expression of what we are and do out of church, then our worship services are distasteful and positively repugnant to God. Then fourthly, God is our Father, and Christian worship is the child's worship of his heavenly Father. Isn't it wonderful? God has not only revealed himself as our Creator and our Redeemer, and our Lord and Master, but also as our Father, who's taken us into his family and made us his children by adoption and grace and loves us with a Father's love and cares for us and provides for us in the tender affection of a Father. And the Christian life is to be understood as the life of the children of God. And as God's children, we no longer shrink from him as our judge, 
We enjoy a confident access to him as our father. We rejoice in his love proved to us by the death of his son on the cross and poured into our hearts by the indwelling spirit. And although there are many dark perplexities that remain, calamities and catastrophes that we do not understand, we learn to rest in the quiet assurance of his faithfulness because he is our Father and we are his children. Abba, Father, we constantly cry, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. So this is worship. Worship is the creature's dependence on the Creator. It is the sinner's indebtedness to the Saviour. It is the servant's obedience to the Master. It is the child's confidence in his Father. Worship, you see, primarily is not concentrated times of singing hymns, whether in public or in private, though that has a place. It is the attitude of our whole heart, the whole time, to God. Now, before I close, I want us to try and learn two vital lessons from all this teaching about man and God, and man fundamentally related to God as a worshipper. And the first is this, that the essence of sin is autonomy. The essence of sin is the proclamation of my own autonomy, refusing, you see, to accept this attitude of dependence towards God. Sin primarily is not crimes. Crimes are sins. Not all sins are crimes. Sin is not primarily serious misdemeanors, theft, adultery, and murder, though they are sins. It's amazing how few people seem to understand, even Christian people, the essence of sin. Sin is our self-centered insistence that we can get along all right as we are. I can manage. Thank you very much. I am my own master. I live for myself. I can manage. I don't need anybody else. I own nobody a living. I'm an island. All on my own. Cut off from other people and from God by a deep, wide ocean. And I am by myself and there I shall stay. That, you know, is the essence of sin. Sin is the replacement of theology by anthropology. Sin is putting man on God's throne, declaring myself an island. Sin is saying, I'm my own creator, I am my own saviour, I am my own boss or lord, and I'm my own father. Sin is not just the insistence on living without God, it is the insistence on living as God, playing God. I am says the sinner. Yes, but that is the affirmation of God. God says, I am who I am. God proclaims his self-dependence. God is the only being who exists, who depends upon himself for his existence. I am, says God. But for man to take those words upon his lips is blasphemy. 
Man is not self-dependent. He depends upon God for his existence. Karl Barth said, The crowning sin of man is the titanic impulse within him to be as God. Brunner said the same thing. Sin is the desire for the autonomy of man. And therefore, in the last resort, it is the denial of God and self-deification. Sin is getting rid of the Lord God and the proclamation of self-sovereignty. And it's not only blasphemy, it is the most pathetic folly. For man is a frail and a fragile creature, and he cannot cope without God. And many breakdowns of human beings today are due to their attempt to live without God. The attempt to live as an island, to live by myself, for myself, I'm too frail, too fragile to do that. And whenever man tries to do it, he disintegrates. Of course, many people try, but one day their bluff will be called. One day their bold front will crack. One day their bravado will collapse. If not through the vanity of life without God and the calamities of life that they may experience, then on the fearful day of judgment... Because on that day some men and women will face reality for the very first time. Their masks will be removed and they will sink in total confusion. At the root of sin is pride and at the root of pride is blasphemy. The arrogant refusal to let God be God. The essence of sin is autonomy. The second lesson I learn is that the essence of goodness is humility. You never said, as I've heard people say, but he's such a good man. Oh, I know he's an atheist and all that, but he's such a good man. Listen, the notion of goodness without godliness is a meaningless notion for a Christian. It is nonsense. It is a contradiction in terms. There is no goodness without godliness. Why the first and great commandment is that we should love the Lord our God with all our being. And if we break that first and great commandment, how can we claim to be good? Our goodness is in rags and tatters around us. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of God and the beginning of goodness is the worship of God. And worship is a humble homage of man, the humble homage of the creature, frail and fragile, who acknowledges his dependence upon the Creator, the humble homage of the sinner, once condemned and now forgiven, who acknowledges his indebtedness to the Saviour, the humble homage of the servant, who belongs to God in the covenant of grace and gives to his master a glad obedience and the humble homage of a child of God who can't get over the fact that God has adopted him into his family and who confidently and confidingly puts his trust in his heavenly Father. Die and on that note, brethren, oh, for more humility before God in our proud man-centered age. 
Oh, for more humility before God. We need to meditate on who he is and how he's related himself to us. We need to see him as our creator and as our savior and as our master and as our father through Jesus Christ. We need to prostrate ourselves before him in that humble homage that we call worship. No man is an island. And first and foremost, he is a servant of God. Let us pray. Let's be quiet. Let's humble ourselves before God. Oh, for more humility before God. Can we adopt towards him now, in humility, the dependence of a creature, the indebtedness of a sinner saved by grace, the glad obedience of a servant or slave, the confiding trust of a child. O oh God, help us, we humbly pray, so to humble ourselves before you, that in this worship we find our true humanity. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour, Amen. You've been listening to John Stott. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Saturday and Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.